We'll grab a Bible today, please, and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Today I'm going to give you the truth about pastors. Being, past, being a pastor is a weird job. It's a weird job. I love it. I feel called to it. I'm grateful to be your pastor, but let's, it's just a weird job. And a lot of people have no idea what the job entails. Uh, there's plenty of people who see this part of the job, what we're doing here today. Um, they know that pastors generally will talk for a bit every Sunday. But beyond that, generally have no idea what it is that pastors do. Even in my own family, I get the question, what is it that you do all week? Maybe you got that question too. When it comes to other professions, we're more familiar. We have a sense of what doctors do. We have a sense of what school teachers do, what construction workers do. We, we have a whole, you know, a wide range of jobs where, yeah, I get what that is. But pastors tend to be a little more of a black box. Who are these weird creatures? Uh, I, I didn't know, honestly, really what it meant to be a pastor until I became one. And it's common in the church that, that we don't really understand what pastors are, what they're supposed to do. Uh, we have a poorly defined understanding. And in the absence of that clearly defined biblical expectation of the kind of people pastors are supposed to be and what we're supposed to do, all sorts of wrong ideas can sneak into the church and can cause great damage to God's church. So we need to know the truth about pastors. If we don't know what pastors are supposed to be, then churches can fall in love with the wrong kinds of leaders, and they can also reject the very leaders that God has given them for their good. And that is what was happening in the town of Corinth in the first century A.D. See, we're at 2 Corinthians chapter 10 today. We're continuing a series on Corinth, and remember, this church was founded in the city of Corinth by Paul. It's one of the churches that he planted. And we've just finished in our series of, of messages through this book uh, a section where in this letter he's been writing to them about money, right? He's been, he, he planted the church and now he's taking up a collection for uh, saints in Jerusalem who are starving and, and poor and they need help. So he's just finished that section. But now in chapter 10 he comes back to one of the main themes of the book, namely that the Corinthians have no idea what a good pastor looks like. See, Paul had founded the church. He'd spent about two years there when he planted the church as their pastor. And then he moved on to plant other churches and support other ministries, but he kept in touch by letter as he moved on. And he found out that while he was gone, other people had showed up, and they had started talking badly about Paul. They, they had started saying, you know, we're better pastors than Paul is, and a certain faction of the church began to listen to these guys instead of Paul. And it broke Paul's heart, not because he was egotistical and he wanted all the glory for himself, but it was because these guys were actually bad pastors. They were leading people away from the gospel. And so Paul had to act to intercede to bring them back to the truth that they believed in the first place. And so as we enter the home stretch of this letter, the last few chapters, we find Paul engaging this issue one last time, and now it's no holds barred. As he begins to teach the congregation one last time, based on his own example, the truth about Pastors, what are they? What should a congregation expect from them? What should they be looking for in a person who God has called to lead them? So I'm going to read the whole chapter today. And as I do in chapter 10, I want you to try to listen to Paul giving his defense of what a good pastor 
does, and is. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave me for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits. But we will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we're not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limits in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. All right, to sum that up today, what I'm going to try to do is give you one sentence that gives you a definition of a pastor from this passage. And then I'm going to walk through the passage bit by bit to defend the, the choices I made in defining a pastor the way I have. So you've got the sentence with some blanks in your outline. Here, here it is. What is the truth about pastors? <clears throat> pastors are humans who use God's weapons to defeat Satan and build up congregations in order to reach the lost and please their Savior. I'm going to say that a few times, so if you didn't get all the blanks, that's okay. Pastors are humans who use God's weapons to defeat Satan and build up congregations in order to reach the lost and please their Savior. Now, i got to say up front, it's kind of weird preaching a message about pastors because you may have noticed I am your pastor. So it's kind of like, is this self-serving? What's going on? So to avoid the awkwardness as much as possible, I'm going to try to say we a lot and not me or I, because this isn't about defending my ministry or my pastorate, but I want you to understand, to help you understand in general, the brotherhood of pastors. You know, as a profession, who are these people that care deeply about the church of God? So what are pastors? What is the truth about pastors? First of all, pastors are humans. 
Pastors are humans. Uh, that may be shocking to you. <laughs> that may be obvious to you, but it's worth repeating. Pastors are humans just like everybody else. Uh, see, one of the problems that happens in churches, and it happened in Corinth, was that people don't really want their pastors to be humans. People want superhumans. They want their pastors to be super pastors. They want them to be superhumans who never make mistakes, who have all the answers, who have perfect families and perfect lives. They want them to be good at everything they could ever imagine a pastor would be good at. They want them to be amazing at preaching and counseling and administration and leadership. Uh, people, if they write their job description for a, a pastor, it sounds like a, a junior high girl describing her ideal man. It's just like just everything you can imagine, right? So, you know, they want someone who studies like an introvert but evangelizes like an extrovert. Someone who leads with like a hard-charging type A personality but is also a tender-hearted shepherd. I mean, you, you want these people who literally don't exist. They want super pastors. And that was true in Paul's day as well. Uh, the Corinthians didn't just want a pastor. They wanted a super pastor. And that's what Paul's opponents were claiming to be. In fact, we'll get here in chapter 11. But Paul makes fun of them by calling them super apostles. They're these super pastors, these ones who claim to be better, superhuman. And that's what the Corinthians wanted. So if you think of Corinth, think of them a lot like New York City. Okay, that's the kind of city they were. They were a city obsessed with image and power and success and wealth. And so they wanted a pastor who fit that mold, someone who was that type A person. But Paul did not fit that mold. He wrote great letters, sometimes confusing, but great letters. But the accusation was that he was a lot better in letter form than he was in person. You see that in verse 10. It says, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. And in verse 1, Paul acknowledges that. He says, I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. So Paul was not an amazing speaker. You ever think about that? Isn't that interesting? Some churches probably would not have wanted Paul to be their pastor because he couldn't preach. He wasn't a great public speaker. He didn't cut an impressive figure. He was not rich. He certainly did not look good after all the things that he had been through, the poverty and the beatings and all the things he'd experienced. He said it back in chapter 4. He said, I am just a jar of clay. And that apparently was not good enough for the Corinthians. They wanted a superhuman. And so they looked at Paul and they saw him just being a human in his weakness and in his uh, deficiencies, and they assumed uh, this must be a sin. Paul must not actually be walking the victorious Christian life, because if he were, then he would be a superhuman. And we see that in verse 2, which is kind of a confusing sentence, but let me tease it out for you. It says in verse 2, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. So he's saying there's some there that are accusing him of walking according to the flesh. And he says, when I get there, I hope I won't have to rebuke you like I think I'm gonna, because some people are saying I'm walking according to the flesh. Now, if you've read much of Paul, you know that what that means, to walk according to the flesh means to live in sin. Right? The, it's the opposite of walking according to the Spirit. The victorious Christian life is a life walked according to the Spirit, where you're relying on the Spirit, you're filled with the Spirit, you're living by faith. And the opposite of that is to walk according to the flesh. And so the Corinthians were accusing Paul, not just of being weak, but of being sinful, to not participating in the fullness of the life of the Spirit, 
Clearly, Paul, you're a deficient pastor. You're not a good pastor because you have weaknesses. If you really followed the Spirit, you would be full of all this power and all this success and all this eloquence. You must be sinning. Now, I love Paul's defense because all he does is change a preposition. Verse 3. So, sorry, the end of verse 2, they say, they suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Verse 3, he says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. You know what he's doing there? He's just saying, yeah, I'm a human. I'm not walking according to the flesh. I'm not indulging in the sinful nature. I am relying on the Spirit, but I am walking in the flesh. I am a human being. I'm in the flesh. Paul's saying, I'm human like everybody else, and I have limitations and weaknesses just like everybody else. That's true of Paul. It's true of me. It's true of all pastors. We're all human. That's just the beginning. So he says, pastors are humans who use God's weapons. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, that is, though we are human, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So he's saying pastors are humans, but, but that doesn't mean that we have no power. No, we have divine power not our power, but God's power working through us. We use God's weapons. That word weapons could also be translated as tools, and that's interesting to think about because every profession has the tools of the trade. If you're a carpenter, you've got your hammer and your level and your measuring tape and all these various tools of carpentry. If you're a doctor, you're going to have your stethoscope and that little uh, thing they stick in your ear with the light. I don't know what that's called, uh, but they have those. And... Uh, if you really need it, you've got the CAT scan or the MRI, all these different tools to do your doctoring. Uh, pastors, what are, what are the tools of the trade for pastors? Well, Paul calls them the weapons of God. The weapons of God. It's actually a very limited toolkit. You've got two things. You've got the Bible and prayer. Those are the tools of a pastor, the weapons of God that we use to do our ministry. We're humans, but when we read the Bible and when we preach the Bible and when we share the Bible and when we pray for you through uh, the power of the Spirit, when we do that, we are tapping into God's power, His divine power, to accomplish His purposes. Now again, that wasn't good enough for the Corinthians. They wanted pastors who had more than just the Bible and prayer. That's a good start, but can you give us a little extra? They wanted eloquent teachers. They wanted people with worldly wisdom who could use worldly methods to accomplish great things. But Paul explicitly renounced all that. If you were to look back in 1 Corinthians, this is a repeated theme for him. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, this is what my ministry was like. 1 Corinthians 2, 1, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 
He says, this was my plan. My, I came with a very limited toolkit. I just came, I'm just going to tell you about Jesus. That's what I did. Paul says, I showed up in Corinth and I just told you God loves you. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He rose from the dead for you. Uh, you can be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus. That's it. And he purposefully did that, avoiding worldly wisdom and the, the, the skilled rhetoric of the day because he wanted, as he says in verse 5, their faith to not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. And that is what pastors do. Pastors say, I've got nothing. This is it. I will pray for you and I will teach you the Bible so that your faith might not rest on me or clever tricks or marketing ploys but on the power of God. It's all we've got. In fact, if you hang out with pastors very long, you'll probably get annoyed with us. Because you ask us a question and we'll say, well, here's what the Bible says. Or if you come to us with a, with a problem, we'll listen to you, we'll love you, we'll empathize with you, and then we'll just say, well, here's what the Bible says and let me pray for you. Because that's all we've got. That's our toolkit. That's the, that's the weapons that we have, the, the Bible and prayer. But it's okay, because that's all we need. Because these weapons are the weapons of God, and they have divine power to accomplish what human power cannot do. One of the cool things is that these weapons are not locked up in a cabinet somewhere, and only pastors have the key to be able to use them. These are weapons that everyone, every Christian should use. It's the Bible and prayer. Pastors aren't special in this. Remember, point one, pastors are humans, just like everybody else. And, and what do we do? We use the Bible and we use prayer to encourage one another. You can do that too. You should do it. The only difference really between pastors and non-pastors is that pastors have devoted more time and energy to practicing the use of those tools. For the most part, I'm not saying more than everybody. And because pastors spend more time practicing and using those tools, they generally wield them a little more effectively than those who haven't. Uh, it's similar to if I were to sit down with someone and try to play one of those first-person shooter video games, like Call of Duty or something. Um, and it, let's assume it's, I don't know, Kyle, right? Kyle's down in the nursery, but he, he enjoys those. So if I were to sit down with Kyle and play uh, a first-person shooter game, uh, we would have access to the same weapons. Uh, we'd use the same controllers, we'd have access to the same weapons in the games, but he would kill me every time. Why? Because I haven't practiced. I'm terrible at those things. Ever since Goldeneye came out when I was in college, it's like, I can't do this. I, don't I, I have the same weapons, but I haven't practiced. I haven't developed skill with them. Now, if I wanted to be get better, I, I could. I could practice and I could try to do it. And the same thing for us in our Christian life. These weapons, these, these things, they're not exclusive to pastors. In fact, every pastor would love for their whole church to, to grow in their skill. In fact, that's kind of the point of what we're doing. We're trying to teach everyone how to use these weapons so that you too can pick them up and fight with the power of God. Use the Bible, point people to Scripture, pray with people. That's, that's, that's what we do as Christians. And pastors are just those who... Uh, as leaders take those up and say, now come along with me, join in the army, pick up the weapons of God, let's do this. Pastors are humans who use the weapons of God to defeat Satan. In verse 3, 
So back in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, verse 3, Paul calls them weapons because he wants to remind us that we are in a battle. That's something that we all need to remember. Uh, that, that, that pastors don't exist just to keep people comfortable, marry you, bury you, and give you an encouraging message every week. But that we are in a battle, and pastors are soldiers, and we are fighting to the death against the devil. And one of the functions of pastors is to be those leaders who are desperately trying to keep you alive. There's an enemy, Satan. 1 Peter 5 describes him as a lion prowling around looking for people he can devour. He's trying to seduce you into sin. He's trying to destroy your life. And he's got his fingers in everything. He has leveraged the entire world, the entertainment industry, the education system, the political system, the economy. He's leveraging all of these things to try to draw you away from Jesus and to shipwreck your faith. Satan is on the attack. And on the other side, we have pastors. Spiritual leaders God has given us who take up the weapons of God to fight against the devil and to lead an army of Christians in that battle. Paul says in verse 5, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's what pastors are trying to do. Satan is raising up all of these arguments, these plausible arguments against Christianity, all these temptations trying to get you to walk away from Jesus. And as we open up the Word of God and through prayer, we use the weapons of God to try to defeat those arguments of Satan. It's our job to say, no, happiness is not found in more stuff. Happiness is found in Jesus. It's our job to say, yes, God's plan for sex in marriage is good and life-giving. It's not what the world says. We're the ones who have to remind our brothers and sisters that the true path to greatness doesn't come from dominating others and getting more power for yourself, but it comes through sacrificial service like Jesus. So what we do, we, we open up the Word of God, and through prayer and the Word, we destroy the arguments of the devil. with the weapons of God. And sometimes it hurts. I know, it hurts me too. When I get rebuked for doing something wrong, it's, it's hard to hear that. It's hard to, to know that I've been duped by a lie of the devil. So sometimes it's difficult to receive that ministry from a pastor. But know this, it's not our goal to hurt you. Nobody goes into pastoring because you just really like making people feel bad. We, we would rather build you up. And that's the fourth thing to see about pastors, is that pastors are humans who use God's weapons to defeat Satan and build up congregations. Verse 7 and 8, Paul says, Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority... Which the, Lord has get, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. So Paul's not shying away from his authority. He's, he's saying, I do have authority. I, I do have the right to rebuke you. It's my job as the one who led you to Christ, as an apostle of Jesus. 
It says, I do have the authority to use the weapons of God to rebuke sin, to deliver you from Satan. But in verse 8, notice he says, what's the real reason why God has given this authority? He says, the Lord gave it for building you up and not for destroying you. Even though he can rebuke the Corinthians, and he does when he needs to, what he really wants to do is build them up. And in that way, pastoring is a lot like parenting. Because when you're a parent, you really do need to correct your kids from time to time. But that is not the point of being a parent. That's not why you got into the game, because I just really want a little person I can tell they're wrong all the time. It's It's not what parenting is. The point of parenting is you want to build up and nurture your child. You want them to help them become the best versions of themselves that they can be. You desire to have that little thing grow up into a fully functioning, adult, mature human being who can contribute. and That's what you want. And that's what pastors do. Like parents with their kids, sometimes you have to uh, bring correction and, 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 and rebuke. But, but the main thing that pastors ask is, how can I help the people in my congregation become the best versions of themselves that they can be? How can I help them move to the next step of spiritual development so they become a little bit more like Jesus? And how can I help this church, this family, act more like a family, functioning and caring for each other like we should? Ephesians 4 puts it well, and this is also Paul writing to a different church, a little more uh, functional church, less dysfunctional, but he says in Ephesians 4, verse 11, he says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's what we want. We want the church to be built up. All of us to be mature, no longer easily deceived by the devil, but united in love and mature in Christ. That's what every pastor wants for their church. But there's also a purpose beyond the local church. Pastors are humans who use the weapons of God to defeat Satan and build up local congregations in order to reach the lost. At the end of the chapter, you notice uh, Paul is defending himself. He's defending his authority as the guy who founded the church. And then in verse 15, he says this, We do not boast beyond limits in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. So Paul wants that church to grow. He wants the Corinthian church to grow. He wants their faith to increase. But even that is not an end in itself. 
He doesn't just want them to be healthy and to be mature as their own congregation. He wants them to increase so that his influence is increased, and he can use that church as a springboard to take the gospel to people who have not yet heard it. He's not just concerned about that one congregation. He, he wants them to be stable. He wants them to be thriving, but he wants them to become an outpost from which he can do additional gospel ministry to folks who haven't heard the gospel. It's an important point that is often missed by congregations. No local church is an end unto itself. But every church exists as an outpost of the kingdom of God, as a springboard for future ministry to those who have not yet heard. Again, the parenting analogy is helpful. Because when your kids grow up and they get married, and I'm not there yet, but I've seen it, what do you want next? When your kids grow up and they move out of the house and they get married, what do you want? Grandkids. When are you going to have grandkids? It's not enough that you raise them, that they're mature, that they're on their own, but you want them to reproduce. You want them to give you grandkids. It's a normal instinct. It's a human thing. We are wired to have a passion to multiply and to have kids. And that is how pastors feel too. Pastors want to build up their local congregations. They want to have the faith of their people grow and mature, but never as an end unto itself. Pastors always want their churches and their people to produce grandkids. They want them to also lead people to Christ, to plant churches, to take the gospel to those who have not heard. The temptation has been there all throughout history. It was here for Corinth as well. Once you get past the initial stage of survival and achieve a level of stability as a church, the focus tends to shift inward. And the primary concern of the congregation becomes the congregation. And you forget about the lost, and you care only that the church continues to exist and to meet your needs and the programs that you want. Every church does this. That's why God has given us pastors, people who are always looking beyond the walls of the church, keeping the church on mission, acting like the annoying mother saying, when are you going to give me grandkids? Paul wanted the Corinthian church to grow, and he wanted his influence among them to increase. But it was not because he was on a power trip. It was because he wanted them to be a healthy and strong jumping-off point for more gospel ministry. And it is true, this is true of every pastor that I know, that we all want our churches to grow. We all want our influence to grow. But it's not because we're egomaniacs. It's because we look around and we see literally thousands of people in our neighborhoods who don't know Jesus, who don't have a church, that are going to hell. And we say, how can we be happy with just this? Paul said, I want you guys to grow. I want you because there are lost people who have not heard the gospel, and I want to work with you to reach them. Pastors are humans who use God's weapons to defeat Satan and build up congregations in order to reach the lost and to please their Savior. I said, every pastor I know wants their churches to grow for the right reasons because they want more influence to reach the lost, but that's not true of every 
pasture. There are some that really do just seem to want to make their own name great. And Paul says that's one of the ways you can tell the good from the bad, is that the bad ones want to be more important than others. The bad ones are concerned about comparing themselves with one another, but the good ones just care about pleasing their Savior. Verse 17, he says, Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Paul doesn't care about worldly success. He's not saying, I I need to prove that I'm better than you. He says, all I care about is pleasing Jesus. In verse 12, he addressed the same issue. He said, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. So that's what the super pastors did. They ran around comparing themselves to each other. Look at me. Look at my church. Look how big our church is. Look at the degrees I have from better schools than you went to. And Paul says, that's foolish. If that's what you're doing, if you're just trying to beat one another in some sort of competition, you've totally missed the point. The point of being a pastor is not like so many worldly fields where it's just you want to be the greatest of all time. I think it's hilarious, even in basketball, it's not just enough to say LeBron James is an amazing basketball player. You have to say, is he better than Michael Jordan? Because you've got to compare yourself. You've got to be the best. You've got to be better than everyone for all time. In the business world, if you want a promotion, you've got to prove that you're better than the other person, that you deserve it, and that you move up. That's not how it is in the Christian life. It's not, it's not pastor versus pastor. It's not church versus church. The point is not to be better than others. The point is to please your Savior. I hope you remember when we studied chapter 5 in 2 Corinthians, we talked about the judgment day. And that we know that every Christian will stand before Jesus and he will throw away all the worthless things we've done and he will evaluate the good things we've done. He will reward us for that. That is what Paul was living for that day, that day. That is what all of us should be living for. And as pastors, that's, that's what we're living for. We're living for that day when we stand before Jesus and he says, hopefully, well done, good and faithful servant. It's a weird job. It's a weird job to take up the weapons of God and fight the devil on behalf of other people. It's weird to and hard to sacrificially labor to build up people, to help people to grow in their faith. It's tiring to constantly be asking, constantly pushing, how can we help? How can we reach more people? How can we do this? How can we get out there and take the gospel of the lost? Why do they do it? They do it because they're living for that day when they stand before Jesus and he says, good job. After all that, I realize I still haven't told you what we do all week. But honestly, it's going to be different from pastor to pastor and church to church. But I hope that you understand now and have a better idea of what the guiding principles are that motivate us. Pastors are humans who use God's weapons to defeat Satan and build up local congregations in order to reach the lost and please their Savior. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for the pastors that you've put in my life. People who invested in me, prayed for me. Uh, 
those who were instrumental in motivating other Christians to take the gospel to me. Uh, I know they're just humans, um, but I'm grateful that you use them. And I'm thankful for the many pastors that you've used in the lives of the people gathered in this room. And I'm thankful that I could be one of them. And I pray that you would help me to be faithful. Please do use us, Lord, to reach the lost and bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen.